Hey everybody, it is Wednesday, December 20th. You're listening to the Mo News Podcast. I'm Moshe Wanunu, back here in New York City. And I'm also back in New York. I'm Jill Wagner. This is the place where we bring you just the facts. And we read all the news and read between the lines so you don't have to. Jill, we've gotten great feedback so far on the interviews in Washington. It was a huge day for Mo News. Two really big interviews, of course, Secretary of State Antony Blinken and also John Kirby, spokesperson for the National Security Council. I thought you asked really great questions, Mosh. You know, we we didn't get a ton of time with them. I mean, relatively speaking, we got a lot of time, but you just typically don't get hours and hours to question these officials. Um, And I thought that we did a really good job and you did a great job with the questions and, and really focusing on what people actually want to know. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing with these interviews is, you know, one of their jobs as spokespeople, as diplomats, is to um, not uh, create conflict, (laughs) not to upset people. Somebody was saying, like, what's up with Blinken? I'm like, well, his job is to not upset (laughs) Joe Biden, Congress, the American people, 197 countries around the world, including the Israelis, the Palestinians, (laughs) the Arab world, the Europeans, uh, and folks at the U.N., So with all that in mind, that's how he (laughs) approaches his answers to questions. So that's always a challenge unless they want to drop some news on you. Um, Always a challenge to kind of get them to reveal more, especially if they're, you know, good at their jobs. But it's our job uh, to ask them hard questions, which I think we did hit as many topics as we can incorporate uh, some of the questions we got from all of you uh, submitted on Instagram. So grateful for all of that. Jill, I should note, so after the interview with Blinken, they had a State Department holiday party for the media that covers the State Department. So um, thankfully, gratefully, we were invited to that, ran into you know some of the correspondents who've been covering this world for a very long time, the Andrea Mitchells of the world. And then we also saw Bob Woodward of Woodward and Bernstein, <laughs> fame. Can you describe uh, the setting, the where we found him at the party, Jill? Okay, so first we saw him at the bar with Deborah Lipstadt, who is the U.S. anti-Semitism envoy, and they were having a conversation. And then we kind of lost him for a little bit. And then as we were about to leave, we noticed that he was sitting at a table with the band that was playing. Right. There was a military band playing uh, like a holiday music in the corner. And we're like, wait, is that Bob Woodward hanging out with the band? And then we, you know, <laughs> we were going to go like chat him up. And then we're like, oh, is that how Bob Woodward gets his stuff? Is like, no one's chatting with the band. And now again, I'm totally speculating. He might have been asking them about their rendition of whatever, right? But he could be just warming up to them, getting their numbers, because you know who witnesses a lot of stuff at interesting functions? The military bands. And so I was like, oh, that's how Woodward does his thing. That's how he develops these sources, gets these incredible anecdotes. Is he's he's at the Christmas party not talking to other journalists. He's there talking to members of the band, being like, where else do you perform? What else have you witnessed? Which presidents <laughs> have you performed with? Um, so that was a fascinating little anecdote there. And especially when you think about that in contrast to, as we were just saying, somebody like Anthony Blinken or John Kirby, who it's their job not to make news and to play, you know, as straight as possible and and not kind of give color for stuff. And the band is just like, you know, hey, you wouldn't believe who had too many drinks the other night (laughs) or whatever. Right. Right. You're you're Bob Woodward, like Watergate Bob Woodward. Bob. Um, let me tell you something I witnessed. Tell me if that makes sense. It was cool. I felt like we were witnessing a pro in action. And most just on a personal note, 
I know that you are kind of like a DC native. You went to school there, you've worked there, but I'm not someone who has reported from DC or spent a lot of time there. So for me, it was my first time at the State Department and it was just a really cool experience. So thank you for helping to facilitate it. And it was just, it was awesome. Yeah, I take these things for granted, Jill. Uh, I should recall my first time reporting from the State Department was on 9-11. I was a uh, student reporter at GW, the campus for George Washington University, is just a couple blocks away from the State Department. And there were a lot of rumors on the morning of 9-11 about all the things that were happening. And one of the first things that came through, I think it was CNN, like around 10 or 11 a.m., was like there's been an explosion of the State Department. There might have been another plane. So I remember like being at the campus paper, like let's go walk down and see if a plane crashed into the State Department. Of course, one did not um, on that day, but it gave you a sense of everything that was happening. It was actually smoke that was blowing over from the Pentagon uh, that people confused for an explosion on the other side of the river. Anyway, long story short, I was like, Jill, you've been here. You know this, you know this. You're like, no, Moshe. Like, we didn't all like live in Washington forever. Right. Like, I was like mouth open looking at all of the flags that I've just seen in the back of all of the live shots. And for me, just again, yes, a super cool experience. Well, we hope to do more with them. Uh, and again, grateful to the folks at State uh, for making the secretary available. And uh, 2024, new year, lots on the agenda. And uh, Jill, we have a lot to get to in today's podcast. All right, Mosh, now to the headlines. Dare I say it? Pack your patience. It is officially. Oh. <laughs> Jill, I don't have room. <laughs> we're, we're traveling with baby. I don't know if I have room for patience. <laughs> it is officially holiday travel time and a record number of Americans are expected to fly or drive to their destinations this year. Overseas, the Pentagon announcing a multi-country naval coalition to protect shipping vessels in the Red Sea from Houthi attacks. Why this situation could lead to a new global supply chain crunch. The latest on hostage negotiations, what a potential new agreement could look like. Back at home, if it feels like nothing is getting done in Congress. You're right. It has actually been the least productive session in more than three decades. In Texas, Republican Governor Greg Abbott signs a border bill that makes entering the state illegally a state crime. A major state Supreme Court ruling bans Donald Trump from the 2024 ballot. And remembering Sandra Day O'Connor, the first woman Supreme Court justice who was laid to rest yesterday. Plus, Mosh has on this day in history. Your clue today, Jill. Every time a bell rings, an angel gets his wings. All right, let's start with holiday travel. AAA predicts this holiday season will be the busiest ever for air travel, with 7.5 million people projected to fly between this Saturday, December 23rd, to Monday, January 1st. And this would break the record high of 7.3 million flyers that was set during the 2019 holiday season. The busiest days for travel are actually tomorrow and Friday. That is according to Hopper. And we should note that the numbers that we just gave from AAA, that doesn't even factor in tomorrow and Friday. Yeah, I guess AAA goes with a 10-day period from the 23rd to the 1st. So, you know, uh, take those numbers and add several hundred thousand or a million more there. Um, Jill, thankfully, unbeknownst to us, or maybe you planned it this way, we're both flying today <laughs> to Florida separately um, to visit our families so hopefully the lines we face at LaGuardia Airport are not too wild. Yes, Moshe, I hacked into your flight schedule to figure out exactly <laughs> when you guys are going to hit the airport. <laughs> yes, but randomly, we are both flying today. Okay, Moshe, out of curiosity, any guesses where AAA says the top domestic and international destinations are this holiday? Mm, 
I would imagine, I sort of assume everyone goes to a warm weather location. So Orlando or Vegas. Uh, internationally, I don't know. London feels right. How did I do? It is not even fun playing this with you because you're right on both. <laughs> <laughs> Was it Orlando yes. or Vegas? Orlando. Yeah. It was Orlando and London. <laughs> Nicely done. Clearly, you've been in the news biz a long time. <laughs> I've, I've covered this story for 20 years. <laughs> People's habits don't change quickly. <laughs> okay. Apparently, the cheapest days to fly yesterday, December 19th, Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. That's according to Hopper. And they say the most expensive days are December 22nd and December 26th. United says it expects its busiest ever holiday travel season. They're expecting about 12% more travelers than last year. A little bit of good news when it comes to ticket prices. They're down a bit from last year's high. They're they're actually below pre-pandemic levels. The average cost of airfare is down about 13% on the year as of October. And overall, according to AAA, about 115 million Americans are expected to travel at least 50 miles from their homes. This makes it the second busiest end of your travel period since 2000. There's one in three Americans there. As for the roads, uh, AAA saying 104 million people will drive to their holiday destination. That is nearly a 2% increase over last year. The busiest days on the roads expected to be this Saturday. Uh, next Thursday, the 28th, and then Saturday, the 30th. That's according to a separate analysis. If you're leaving for the holidays on this Saturday, the best time to head out the door before 10 a.m. if you can get everyone to cooperate in your family. And if you're heading home the day after Christmas, also get out before noon. We've also gotten some extra data here uh, in regards to flight cancellations. Some actually good news for the first nine months of 2023. Uh, new numbers are out showing the biggest U.S. airlines canceled 1.6% of flights for the first nine months of this year. That is down from 2.8%, from nearly 3% of flights last year. Delays do continue to be an issue. The largest airlines reporting 76.2% on-time performance uh, through September. That's down slightly from 2022. Most years, uh, the on-time flight performance is above 77%, so pretty notable in terms of delays there. Other data that came out recently, as we stick with the travel theme here, complaints about U.S. airlines have climbed sharply. The data is only for the first half of the year. So despite the fact that cancellations are down, we're still complaining or finding lots of reasons to complain. Uh, dissatisfied with the airlines, travelers filed more than 26,000 formal complaints about airlines in the first half of this year. That is more than double the previous year. So either there's more problems, we're being louder, or the transportation department is filing more of these complaints. Either way... Um, those are the headlines. Big picture, Jill and I will let you know how our flights went on Wednesday on tomorrow's podcast uh, and whether we'll be filing any formal complaints. I really hope not. That's <laughs> 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 just about the last thing we want to do. Jill, I will note, if you do take the time to complain, and I'm not saying you should complain for no reason at all, sometimes the airline will give you some extra miles, give you some extra credits. It just requires you to actually call in also, be respectful to those people on the phone. Uh, they deal with a lot of uh, a lot of angry people. But you will, uh, if you have an issue, the airlines are uh, in a giving mood lately. The times that you know Wi-Fi, other stuff hasn't worked on the plane for me. See, it wouldn't even occur to me to call and complain about something like that. But Jill, it's but an extra five thousand miles. Yeah, I mean, this is yeah. here's what I've been doing wrong <laughs> all my life. <laughs> All right, let's head overseas. The Pentagon announcing a new international mission to counter attacks on commercial vessels in the Red Sea. 
protecting them against drones and ballistic missile attacks fired from Houthi-controlled areas of Yemen. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin continuing his swing around the Middle East Tuesday with a stop in Bahrain, announcing the establishment of Operation Prosperity Guardian, which he describes as an important new multinational security initiative Can we just discuss the name? Do we like the name? They have to name so many (laughs) missions. Um, Jill, they run out and then they end up like kind of putting Guardian and, you know, like, uh, but I I get the theme here because of all the shipping that's going on and they're protecting it. So the name applies. I give them approval on the name, Jill. So, so far, the UK, Bahrain, Canada, France, Italy, the Netherlands, Norway, the Seychelles and Spain have joined this new maritime security mission Some of these countries will be doing patrols. Others will be providing intelligence. Other countries have reportedly agreed to participate, but not publicly. One notable absence here is China, which does have warships in this area, but still has not responded when there have been calls for assistance by commercial ships. The U.S. military reported two more attacks on commercial ships Monday, uh, one of them hitting a tanker off of Yemen. And the attacks have led to numerous shipping companies deciding to hold their ships in place and not enter the Bab El Mandeb Strait until the security situation is addressed. Yeah, this is a crucial point here. If you look on a map and you see the Horn of Africa and you see um, the Arabian Peninsula, it is a thin point. And that is where a lot of global commercial traffic passes through. The Southern Red Sea, by the way, is about the distance of D.C. to Boston, to give you a sense of things. Military officials say there are about 400 commercial vessels traveling in those waters at any given time. And the Houthis have been targeting a number of them, trying to shut it down. Uh, They work in conjunction with Hamas. They're trying to show loyalty to Hamas. Uh, They're sponsored by the Iranians. And they've taken to the sea in recent months, uh, as well as launching missiles and drones to really cut down on commercial traffic there. As part of this mission, the military ships will be positioned to provide umbrella protection to as many ships as possible. The Houthis, though, do not seem deterred. They're, again, that terror group based out of Yemen uh, that controls part of Yemen, but uh, again, has been engaged in this global piracy. They are considered a terror group by many countries, uh, sponsored and given weapons by the Iranians. They say they're going to continue to target what they say are Israeli-linked vessels off of Yemen, but they have a very uh, large definition of Israeli-linked, even if it's owned by a subsidiary of somebody related to Israel or the ship might stop there. They're targeting many, many ships and really forcing a number of shipping companies uh, and oil companies now to think about new routes. Right now, the shipping company Maersk uh, says they're going to reroute many of their ships around Africa, uh, around the Cape of Good Hope, a much longer, less efficient, more expensive route. Oil and natural gas prices have already spiked this week because BP says they're going to pause all shipments through the Red Sea, through the Suez uh, Canal. Jill, we were talking about uh, we didn't start the fire, trouble in the Suez. Trouble in the Suez. Right. We have uh, trouble for ships passing through the Suez, through the Red Sea. So uh, you see a number of uh, major companies there that are going to be going around Africa. Well, what is that going to do? Well, the concern now, according to The Economist, is a supply chain crunch here. 20% of global container volumes pass through that route. 10% of all global trade, 10% of all gas and oil all pass that route. Well, with many of them not doing that, taking the longer route, it's going to become more expensive. Who do they pass the cost along to? The consumers. Um, And that's if things get here on time and the shelves remain full. So that is something to be on the lookout for. The era of global supply chain issues ain't over yet. Uh, And that's why a lot of folks have been saying, you know, we got to take this hoodie threat seriously. There's sort of a 
uh, an afterthought when it comes to kind of terror groups in the region because they've been mainly focused on that um, terrible war in Yemen. But now uh, they've set their attention globally. Jill, it's one of the questions uh, we asked Tony Blinken earlier this week. And I was like, you know, people are saying you got to be taking this more seriously. You got to really be cutting down on this. You got to be showing the Iranians who's boss. And, you know, he gave a very diplomatic response that we we believe we've done enough, yada, yada, yada. Clearly here they've launched this new mission. So uh, we're going to see what effect that has and whether things escalate further, especially now that there's economic consequences to what's going on there. And Mosh, we have been talking about economic data and inflation finally coming down a bit. And one of the reasons has been because gas prices are at their lowest level in months, which has been a huge relief to consumers Uh, perhaps short-lived if we see this last a little bit longer. Blame the Houthis. Okay, an update now on the hostage negotiations. Al Jazeera is reporting that um, the senior Qatar-based Hamas leader, Ismail Hanea, will visit Egypt today for talks on a ceasefire in Gaza and a prisoner exchange. As we reported yesterday, there are talks uh, with CIA Director Bill Burns. He met on Monday with the Prime Minister of Qatar and also the head of Israel's Mossad agency. They were in Poland to talk about a potential new deal. Now, in what appears to be a leak by government officials, Israeli TV networks are reporting Israel's approach to this new round of negotiations. They say that Israel wants a deal to include women, elderly, and anyone who is physically or mentally ill. And they believe that that will be about 30 to 40 of the 128 hostages that are still in Gaza. Israel, they say, is prepared to negotiate the number and type of Palestinian prisoners that it would release in exchange for those hostages. The first time around in that humanitarian pause, Israel mostly released women and young prisoners, many of whom were held for minor offenses. Uh, Many had not actually been officially charged with a crime. And they've also talked about expanding humanitarian aid and a pause in fighting like we did see the last time around. Yeah, there's a lot of pressure internally in Israel. Uh, The Prime Minister Netanyahu meeting with hostage families, especially in the fallout of the incident uh, on Friday, where the IDF accidentally killed three Israeli hostages amid fighting there in Gaza. Meanwhile, one other update for you, a top advisor to the Palestinian Authority, President Abbas, uh, sat down with a Saudi news channel uh, and ripped into Hamas for starting the war. A reminder that the Palestinian Authority, the Fatah Party, is a competitor to Hamas. They manage the West Bank. They were booted by Hamas in a coup in 07. Though so far in this war, they haven't been aggressively critical of Hamas uh, because Hamas is so popular, especially in the West Bank, where the PA is trying to maintain control. So uh, interesting here, the advisor to the PA president saying that Hamas has brought destruction upon Gaza. No one will dodge their responsibility for it. And it's not the first time uh, the top advisor there, uh, critical of Hamas, he did an interview earlier this month with the Times of Israel and told them, we didn't want or need this war. What was the point? Did Hamas actually imagine that it could win this war? So interesting there, as the Palestinians figure out uh, who will run uh, Gaza in the aftermath, that's something as well we asked uh, Tony Blinken about, the Secretary of State, uh, in our interview on Monday. I made a point of mentioning, you know, Mahmoud Abbas, the leader of the PA, 88 years old, widely viewed as corrupt. 90 plus percent of Palestinians want him to resign. Why is the U.S. propping him up? Notable here, Blinken didn't really address the PA or Abbas in the answer, but here's a bit of what he did say. Uh, It's going to be a process to make sure that governance combines both Gaza and uh, and the West Bank uh, and uh, a process to see what kind of leadership emerges and how it emerges. I mean, ultimately, we stand for elections uh, around the world. 
that's something that you'd also want to see at some point. Um, but the most important thing is to make sure that Palestinians are governing themselves. And how they decide to do that, uh, by which group, by which people, that fundamentally has to be their decision. But it, it's not something that will necessarily happen from one day to the next. You've got to get a process to get there. So you see there? Uh, of course, from Lincoln, very diplomatic language. Uh, it's going to be a process. The Palestinians have to choose, et cetera. Um, and these are one of the questions I had in the interview where I was like, okay, he didn't mention, do I follow up? Like, would he actually answer when I follow up? How many times do I need to follow up? And I sort of just moved on to the next answer. But that gives you a sense of where the Americans are diplomatically. It's about the Palestinians choosing, but sort of it's going to take a while to get there. Hint, hint, you know, we'll go to war with the army we have, so to speak. Moshe, I do want to quickly mention for anyone who is interested in more of a background about the Middle East, Hillary Clinton has a podcast. It's called You and Me Both. And in one of her recent episodes, she interviewed Bill Clinton. How'd she get him? Big death for Hillary on her podcast. <laughs> and I'm only about halfway through, but it is fascinating because he says, look, everybody thinks they know what happened in terms of peace negotiations and 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 whatnot. He's like, but I was actually in the room. He said, I'm going to tell you exactly what happened back in the late 90s. And as he says, it's it's so incredibly sad, actually, to think about how close they were to getting a two-state solution and just how much the situation has deteriorated. A lot of alternate histories, Jill. Uh, a lot of interesting paths could have been taken over the course of these past 75 years. Okay, we have plenty of news coming up, but now it's one of our newest sponsors, Factor, which I am literally drinking one of their juices as we speak. Jill, what flavor? Apple, kale, and wheatgrass. And I got to say, it is delicious. You can't even taste the wheatgrass. They have ready-to-eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner. They are never frozen, chef-prepared, dietitian-approved. These ready-to-eat meals are delivered straight to your door. I have been loving them. I love the cold-pressed juice, the pasta dishes. I've loved all of the chicken meals as well. They are ready in just two minutes. So all you have to do is heat and enjoy. Treat yourself to high-quality, delicious meals over the holidays. You could choose from more than 35 chef-crafted meals every week. They support a healthy lifestyle. And they have tons of options like calorie smart, vegan, veggie, protein plus, and more. Just head to Factor Meals. That is F-A-C-T-O-R, factormeals.com slash monews50 and use that code monews50. You get 50% off. Again, that code monews50 at factormeals.com slash monews50 to get 50% off. Time now for the speed read from Axios. The current Congress, which is halfway through its current two-year term, is on track to be one of the most unproductive in modern history, with just a couple dozen laws on the books so far. Divided partisan control of Washington, plus infighting in the House Republican majority, have routinely ground legislative business to a halt. Yeah, we had that whole period without a speaker earlier this year. Just 20 bills have passed both chambers and have been signed into law this year with another four awaiting President Biden's signature. They do have a year to go when they come back in January, but it is an election year. Notably, not much happens in those years. Yeah, uh, typically, like you'll see in 24, uh, members of Congress are back home uh, running for re-election, all members of the House and a third of the Senate. So not much business happens in Washington. Uh, and then, of course, there's a presidential election. So not much will be getting pushed from the White House, uh, especially with, again, Republicans control the House, Democrats in control of the Senate. So by congressional standards here, this is far below even historically unproductive years. There were the 104th Congress, the 112th Congress, the 113th Congress. Those are all Congresses where Republicans controlled one or both chambers with Democrats, uh, Bill Clinton and uh, Obama 
in the White House. They would pass between 70 and 73 laws during those Congresses. We're not even at a third of that at this point. Now, the vast majority of the stuff that did get passed this year, pretty uncontroversial stuff uh, passed by unanimous consent, like uh, renaming Veterans Affairs Clinics, one to mint a coin commemorating the Marine Corps. Uh, That's something Congress has been up to this year. But remember, as we talk about an unproductive Congress, that's not necessarily a bad thing. If you ask all members of Congress, many Republicans come in saying they don't want Congress to do stuff, that the federal government is a problem, that they've come to Washington to stop the government from doing stuff. Now, you do have others who are like, listen, we have immigration, we have education, we have healthcare, we have the border, we have Social Security, we have Medicare, we have a whole bunch of stuff that we got to deal with in this country. So um, that's just something to keep in mind. You know, some people come in saying the government that is best does the least and then others want a much more robust government. As we've been talking about on the podcast, one big thing we'll be watching, and it doesn't look like it's going to get done before the end of the year, a deal uh, for extra funding for Ukraine and Israel and Taiwan, as well as funding and new rules for the southern border with Mexico. That's been a subject to negotiations here, but it does not appear it'll get done before members of Congress go on uh, Christmas and New Year's break. Speaking of immigration from CNN, Texas Governor Greg Abbott signed into law Monday a bill that makes entering Texas illegally a state crime. That is an extraordinary step in the hard fought legal battle between the state and the federal government over efforts to curtail illegal immigration. The measure is called SB4. It grants local law enforcement the power to arrest migrants and judges the ability to issue orders to remove them to Mexico. The Republican legislation was condemned by civil rights groups and immigration advocacy groups after the Texas legislature passed it last month. The law is expected to take effect in March. That said, the ongoing surge of migration at the U.S.-Mexico border has placed immense pressure on local and federal resources. Border authorities apprehended about 192,000 migrants between ports of entry in November. That is a 2% increase compared with the 188,000 migrant apprehensions in October. And Moshe, it is getting so bad on Sunday, U.S. Customs and Border Protection announced that it would have to temporarily suspend operations at the International Railway Crossing Bridges in Eagle Pass in El Paso, Texas, starting Monday because of a surge in border crossings by migrants. Yeah, the pictures are pretty remarkable in terms of the surges. Uh, Even reporters that have been reporting this for a while are like, even by the standards that I've been seeing, this is an incredible uh, surge happening. Now, as far as this law is concerned, the Republicans in Texas maintain this is constitutional. But that's one of the questions here. The Texas Municipal Police Association saying that this law gives local law enforcement better tools to work with because their role in immigration enforcement is in doubt here. Uh, There's been some limits. Now, aspects of this law were already rejected by the Supreme Court more than a decade ago when it said that the federal government is the one that sets immigration policy and laws here. So you're going to see a lawsuit. The ACLU has already said they're going to be suing Abbott over the measure, saying that uh, the state doesn't have the sort of authority. They're taking authority they don't have, according to the Constitution. Congressman Joaquin Castro of Texas, 20 other Democrats have written a letter to the U.S. Attorney General uh, expressing grave concern over the bill, saying, Attorney General Garland, please assert your authority over federal immigration and foreign policy. This is effectively Texas having its own foreign policy, something Texas is very used to, by the way. Texas was once its own country. Um, Jill, it has its own power grid separate from the other 49 states. Um, So Texas tends to do its own thing here. But they've also been dealing with some of those really serious ramifications here of the migrant crisis. And so Abbott's been trying a whole bunch of stuff, some of it that has been overturned by courts. And we'll see how this stands and what comes of this. 
And sticking with politics from the New York Times, former President Trump is ineligible to hold office again. That is according to the Colorado Supreme Court. It accepted the argument that the 14th Amendment disqualifies him in an explosive decision that could upend the 2024 election in a lengthy ruling ordering the Colorado Secretary of State to exclude Trump from the state's Republican primary ballot. The justices reversed a Denver district judge's finding last month. At issue is Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, which disqualifies people who have engaged in insurrection against the Constitution after having taken an oath to support it from holding office. The lower court found that it did not apply to the presidency, but the state Supreme Court says that it does. So they affirmed the district judge's other key conclusions that Trump's actions before and on January 6, 2021 constituted engaging in insurrection and that courts had the authority to enforce Section 3 against a person whom Congress had not specifically designated. Yeah, so significant ruling here. We've been watching a bunch of these cases, Jill, and we should note this ruling only applies to Colorado, which is one of the 50 states having primaries. They're actually one of the Super Tuesday states voting on March 5th. But if the U.S. Supreme Court were to affirm it, he could be disqualified more broadly. Now, we're skeptical of that, given the makeup of the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, The Colorado Supreme Court, for its part, has stayed its ruling until January 4th to allow Trump to appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court if he does, which we assume he will. The ruling could be stayed longer while this proceeding unfolds. So the Colorado Supreme Court here is the first court to find that the disqualification clause of the Constitution applies to Trump is an argument opponents of Trump have been trying to make across the country. We've been tracking lawsuits in Minnesota, in New Hampshire. Both of those were dismissed in courts there. A judge in Michigan ruled last month that the issue was political and not for the judge to decide. That's going up to the Michigan Supreme Court soon. Not surprisingly, Trump's campaign denounced the ruling. Uh, The quote from them, unsurprisingly, the all-Democrat appointed Colorado Supreme Court has ruled against President Trump supporting a Soros-funded left-wing group scheme to interfere in an election on behalf of crooked Joe Biden by removing Trump's name from the ballot and eliminating the rights of Colorado voters. So it appears they will be appealing to the Supreme Court here, the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, given the Colorado ruling. And we'll continue to track it, Jill, because we know this is not going to be an easy election year to cover, a lot of complexity here, and already uh, a lot of big legal issues. And from CBS News, Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, the first woman to serve on the Supreme Court, was honored at her funeral on Tuesday as a trailblazing jurist who served as a role model for millions by breaking down gender barriers for women across the legal profession. O'Connor died in Phoenix on December 1st at the age of 93. Until her retirement in 2006, O'Connor was the Supreme Court's ideological center for more than two decades providing the decisive vote in dozens of cases that influenced a wide swath of American life over her tenure. All nine sitting justices and retired Justice Anthony Kennedy were on hand for Tuesday's ceremony at the National Cathedral in Washington. President Biden and Chief Justice John Roberts were among those who eulogized the late justice. Biden saying that even if you didn't agree with all of her decisions, her desire for civility was genuine. Take a listen. And how she embodied such attributes under such pressure and scrutiny help empower generations of women in every part of American life, including the court itself, helping to open doors, secure freedoms, and prove that a woman can not only do anything a man can do, but many times do it a heck of a lot better. 
President Biden, who spent more than 30 years in the Senate before becoming VP, recalled O'Connor's nomination to the Supreme Court uh, while he was the top Democrat on the Senate Judiciary Committee. He gave a eulogy also uh, John Roberts, uh, who served briefly on the court with O'Connor following his appointment in 05. Uh, They both discussed the barriers that she broke down that are almost unthinkable today. Remember, she was the first woman on the Supreme Court. Today, there are four women on the Supreme Court, basically a 5-4 split, male-female now. And uh, it was significant. Reagan actually made that promise uh, during the 1980 election to appoint the first woman on the court. Roberts, in his eulogy, said her leadership shaped the legal profession, making it obvious that judges are both women and men. Uh, Again, this is the 80s. It's remarkable how far we've come. The time when women were not on the bench seems so far away because O'Connor was so good when she was on the bench. They acknowledged the many obstacles she faced. Um, Jill, there were some great anecdotes told about how she was raised on a cattle ranch, uh, and she wasn't overly uh, praiseworthy of her clerks. One story was recounted during the service uh, that she had her law clerks post a photocopy of her palm on the wall alongside a note that read, if you want a pat on the back, lean here. Culturally speaking, Mosh, I'm not sure how that would fly with Gen Z and millennials. No, no, the millennials would would not be into it. And Gen Z would most definitely not be into it. Uh, But that's how O'Connor ran the deal. She talked about, you know, her kind of hard upbringing on the cattle ranch and said, you're here to do a job. Uh, And that's the deal. As you noted, she spent much of her tenure, more than two decades on the court, basically as that swing vote. Uh, She was the swing vote, despite being appointed by Reagan, sort of that ideological center. Then it was Anthony Kennedy um, as the swing vote. Uh, Interestingly, given the shift of the court, the swing vote today, as declared by one of the justices, is Brett Kavanaugh. Um, He sort of said, I'm the swing vote. He declared that in a ruling last year, effectively. (laughs) Are you allowed uh, to self-determine that? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I guess so. (laughs) Um, Basically, you know, uh, Roberts was that actually as the chief justice, uh, post-Kennedy, I should mention. And now that the court shifted further right and is 6'3 conservative, it is no longer Roberts, but Kavanaugh at times, but in some cases, Amy Coney Barrett. So anyway, I'm nerding out in the Supreme Court there. But uh, it's interesting because she ruled on a number of cases, including predicting in her ruling on affirmative action that uh, we had about 25 years left from her prediction about 22 years ago of affirmative action, feeling like the time would be done in 25 years. Uh, So a couple of years early, they made that ruling last year. So she seemed to have a sense of the country, a sense of the courts, a sense of where things were going. And it's always interesting to watch these uh, big memorial services from Washington because it gathers people from the right, from the left. It's one of the few times in Washington when somebody dies that everyone's actually talking to each other. All right, now time for On This Day in History as we finish today's pod. On this day in 1860, following Abraham Lincoln's election as president, South Carolina would become the first state to secede from the Union uh, as the Civil War starts just a couple weeks into Lincoln's tenure. Fast forward to the 21st century. On this day in 2019, Trump signed the National Defense Authorization Act that established the Space Force, the newest branch of the U.S. military prior to that Uh, It was probably the Air Force then uh, that was established just a few years out of uh, World War II. What's up with the Space Force? You don't hear much about them. Listen, uh, they're looking for the aliens. They're making sure that the Chinese and others are not up to funny business in space. So it's human threats in space. It's non-human threats in space. And given all of the uh, various secret military technology that uh, is being launched up there, you know, I imagine they have their hands full. Uh, Kim Jong-un among them recently uh, trying to launch some more military satellites. 
All right, a bit of pop culture history. We got some movie history on this day, uh, Jill, on this day in 1946. Per the clue earlier about an angel getting its wings. On this day, Frank Capra's It's a Wonderful Life, starring Jimmy Stewart, premiered, later becoming a holiday classic. That was among the quotes from that film. Also on this day, probably one of the best sequels in history. Some people argue the sequel better than the original. Godfather 2, Francis Ford Coppola's sequel to the original Godfather, came out on this day in 1974, 49 years ago, following the success of Godfather. Paramount Pictures began developing a follow-up. Coppola, who had been given more creative control for the second film, wanted to make both a sequel and a prequel to The Godfather, telling the rise of Vito, the fall of Michael. So on this history, we also got Godfather Part 2. Also, one of my favorite films in history, uh, because it's a subject that I, you know, become obsessed with at times, JFK, Oliver Stone's JFK, starring Kevin Costner, premiered in theaters 32 years ago today. And in lighter movie history news, Jill, Father of the Bride with Steve Martin, Martin Short, the whole uh, crew there. Uh, That came out also on this day in 1991. Most, there's this great meme that's been going around of Diane Keaton and Steve Martin, who are the parents in that movie. And it says, you know, it was 30 years ago. And they say, this is what 45-year-olds looked like, you know, 30 years ago back in 1995. And they look much older, I think, than we look now. In our Skin sweats care. and hoodies. Botox. <laughs> Jill, we still got a couple of years till 45. Let's see. Uh, let's see how <laughs> we'll see go. how we look. Yeah, we'll see how we look then. <laughs> and finally, a little music history here. 37 years ago today. We'll end with this hit. Walk like an Egyptian. Walk like an Egyptian. Reached number one on the Billboard charts 37 years ago today. Whenever this song comes on the radio, my husband likes to tell the story that his gym teacher back from, I think, when he was in elementary school, was an extra in that music video, kind of doing the walk like an Egyptian dance. (laughs) Those are the things that stay with you that you remember from your childhood. You know, listen, we all have various memories from gym class, Jill. (laughs) Do kids still get to play dodgeball with with the foam balls? That was my favorite. I hope so. Or overtake that the running game. Doesn't sound like it was a big hit in Chicago. All right. It was uh, a big thing, at least not in my my gym class. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Mo News Podcast. If you like what you hear, share this with your friends. It will help us grow. Follow us and subscribe so you don't miss an episode and review us in the App Store. See everyone tomorrow from Florida. Thanks for listening to the Mo News Podcast.